I want to just uh, express my condolences. I know that uh, Judy's here with her family, and there's a funeral service this Wednesday, but because of the COVID restrictions, we can only have 50 people here. So if you'd like to come and join us via stream, we'll give you a stream link on Tuesday. So if you phone the office, we'll give you that link, okay? Why don't we stand as we go to the Lord in prayer today? I want to just begin by wishing you a wonderful, amazing, and incredibly powerful 22, 2022. Happy New Year to you. How many want to believe God for a better 22? Anybody up for that one? Uh, Most of us, right? But we're going to pray today. And my prayer this morning, you know, we had a really powerful time of prayer today. And I know there's a lot of people in our church family walking through some challenging moments in their life, and we want to pray for them. But also, I I want to pray that we would open our hearts to God. Because, you know, we can come to church even on a weekly basis, and it just becomes a routine kind of thing. And we hear words and hear messages, and we go, yeah, that was good. But it doesn't have any really lasting impact on our life. And that's a little bit of a concern. So let's pray today that we begin this new year, say, Lord, right now, Holy Spirit, would you come and prepare my heart? That's what we're going to invite him to do that, because I believe God wants to speak to you today. He wants to speak into your innermost being. He wants to set a course, and it may be a corrective course. He wants to bring about some changes in your life in 22 that if you will let him, he will begin to do it. And so, Father, as we open our hearts today, we recognize we can have the word of God and the spirit of God come, but if our hearts are, are hardened, indifferent, apathetic, we're going through motions, we're not necessarily hearing what you want to say to us. And Lord, and if we do hear it with our ears, it doesn't affect us emotionally. It doesn't impact us in the area of application and how it brings about transformation in our lives. So I'm going to pray right now, Lord, <clears throat> that you, Holy Spirit, would come, open the eyes of our understanding impact us at a very deep level today. And as we leave this place, I pray that what has been shared from your heart to ours would have a lasting, transformative aspect to it so that by the time we journey through 22, we will look back on this next year, this year we're in now, and look back at the end of it and say, wow, Lord, you brought about a change in my life. You empowered me to become a person that you designed me to become. And I just thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to turn in our Bibles today to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 4. I thought I was going to do three chapters in one, but I got so locked into chapter 4, we're doing just chapter 4. And I've entitled the sermon, Making Our Way Towards Wholeness. How many here think that's really an exciting topic? Like, you know, there's probably places in our life that are a bit fragmented. There's some brokenness there. How many would like to have a healing in your innermost being that you could come to a place of real wholeness? You know, this word wholeness and holiness can be interchangeable terms. So really what it means is we're going to become more like God in 22. And I love that. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with the name William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was a British member of parliament in another century. In a time when he came into uh, his practice as a a minister of the Legislative Assembly, or an MP, sorry, a member of parliament, he, uh, he wasn't a believer. As a matter of fact, he 
eventually became a follower of Christ. We'll talk about that in a moment. But his significant contribution was that he was in his tenor, was able to, with the help of so many people, turn the stem of slavery from the British Empire. And that was a Herculean task at the time. As a matter of fact, the morals of Britain at that time were so bad that uh, people, you know, some of the things that you and I take for granted today were he instrumentally brought about that change with many other people. God did something powerful in the nation of Britain. Turn that nation right around. I think that's beautiful. Now, I think what a lot of people don't realize was that Wilberforce, I'm having a problem here advancing this. Nobody at the soundboard? Yeah, thanks, Deb. Um, Wilberforce knew the God of the universe as a loving person. Isn't that beautiful? To know God as a loving person. I think that's so critical. You know, a lot of people have different ideas of who God is, but he knew God as a loving person who had intervened in his life, kind of rescued him, so that he was filled with gratitude to God for being able to see what he saw and was slow to condemn those who didn't see things as he did. I'm, I'm reading from a quote from Eric McTaxis, who wrote a book called uh, Seven Men and the Secret of Their Greatness. Now, he wrote an entire book on Wilberforce, and I've read other books. I haven't, I've read another book on Wilberforce. I'm well acquainted with the story. Very powerful life. What I love about his statement here was simply this. He realized that the majority of people don't understand what's going on because they don't have eyes to see it. They're not looking through a certain lens. They're kind of blinded by where they're camped. And you know, all of us are looking at life through a lens. You and I see things through our own lens, our lens of experience, our lens of understanding, our lens of revelation. What has God put in our hearts, shown us from the word of God? He goes on to talk here um, that Wilberforce loved his enemies. It kind of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus loved his enemies. Wilberforce was a person who was emulating the life of Christ. He didn't grandstand or fulminate. Now, that, uh, fulminate, that's an interesting term. Some of you probably know what it means, but I didn't. I had to look it up. And it's very important that we understand that term because it means to loudly denounce or condemn. Somebody who is really good at putting people down. He didn't do it that way. You know, sometimes when we're upset about something, we, we tend to get you know, worked up. But he says... He, he didn't do that to those who were wrong, even if the subject was the horror of the slave trade. In other words, even though he knew he was in the right, he didn't go about correcting the wrong in the wrong way. That is so critical that we understand this. He included himself actually in the group of those who were guilty. And you know why he did that? Because Wilberforce knew, but for God's grace... And because of where he was before he was a devout follower of Jesus Christ, he was exactly in that camp. And God, by his grace, opened his eyes and he came to faith in Christ and it began to change how he saw life and his whole value system began to become transformed. But rather than condemning people that were still stuck back here, he didn't do it that way. As a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons why so many non-believers are alienated by the Christian community. Because they see us as being condemning and self-righteous. 
And it's a trap we can slide into. Because we recognize that some of the things that, you know, our culture is embracing, we know it as an evil, we know it as destructive, we know it as an unloving thing, we know it as unhealthy, we know it doesn't bring wholeness, but yet the way we go about trying to bring about this change is so critical. And that's why I think what we're going to hear today is so important. I think Wilberforce models it so beautifully for us. Wilberforce's graciousness in the midst of the battle against the slave trade did a lot to persuade those who were on the fence, instead of putting them off and pushing them away, he knew that God had commanded him to love his enemies and he knew it wasn't an option, so he would fight with his opponents and try to win, but he would do it in God's way, by God's means. He would show love and grace even as he fought the principle with great passion. And you know, he had such a profound impact in his generation with many others that were on the same page. You and I are faced with great evil in our time. We know that. We can see it, you know, but we must never succumb to that self-righteous attitude. It's so dangerous. We must never see these significant changes in the moral landscape of our nation simply as a collective We're going to move away from that understanding. See, we can denounce those people. But when we see the problem as the problem begins with me, then it changes, I believe, how we're going to approach the problem. And I believe we're going to bring about real change when we start in the one place where we can make the change, and that's with ourselves. So God actually looks beyond the terrible outcomes of our sins that we commit as a nation And he sees into the individual condition of every human heart. And so the need in every generation is a return to God individually. So the conclusion of Jeremiah 3 has been one of disillusionment. People are disillusioned. You know, the nation of Israel and Judah had pursued their own dreams. They had worshipped the false gods or the idols of the nations they found themselves in or were surrounded by. And what had been promised of a good life had turned out to be bitter and empty. You know, that's what's happening in our culture right now. You know, we've embraced this this whole idea of what the good life is. And then we find out later on when we've secured and pursued after it most of our lives that it's really a lot more empty than we thought. The way forward was to change course and to return to God, the God of their forefathers. But what does that really require? And here in chapter 4, we're going to find God's call and also see an unheeded response of the people. And so I want to look at four elements in Jeremiah's message that I think will help bring us to wholeness. And I think that is so critical. And the first one is simply to describe for us a way or a path towards wholeness. How do we get there? You've got to be going in the right direction to get healthy. You know, a lot of people are moving in the wrong direction. They're never going to get healthy. The message is turning back to God. It means a change of direction. In Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 1, it says, If you, Israel, will return, then return to me, declares the Lord. That's that's the Old Testament way of saying repent. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray. In other words, you've got to turn your back on something. You've got to put some things aside in order to get whole. You've got to let go of some things in order to get healthy. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 2, And if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will invoke blessings by him, and in him they will boast. 
This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. Isn't that interesting? So he's using an analogy, a picture here of ground that is hard. It needs to be fallowed up and the weeds need to be addressed before seed can go in and actually bear fruit. And a lot of times what happens is, even in our lives as Christians, we can be reading the Bible daily, or we can be reading this, or you know, listening to sermons, but if we're not careful, we can be allowing our heart, our heart to get harder and harder, and we're not receiving what God's trying to say into our lives. We're just, we're just reading what we wanna hear. We're just, we're just finding texts that support our ideas rather than hearing the voice of God speaking into our lives, making the corrections and the adjustments that God wants to make into our lives. So there's a danger. You know, we think, oh, it's safe reading the Bible. I think it's the most dangerous book in the, in the world. I mean, this book can, you know, you know, there's people have done really crazy things in the name of religion and in the name of the Bible and in the name of Jesus, and they've been totally out to lunch. So we need to make sure that our hearts are in the right place. And I, I believe that the right heart is a tender heart, a receptive heart, a humble heart, one that's receiving and hearing and responding and applying what God is speaking and showing the individual. He goes on to say, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. Now, I'm going to just summarize these first four verses and say simply this, that if you and I are going to have to be to, to change and to turn and to develop, we have to become extremely honest with ourselves. How many think that might be important? And one of the great challenges is it's so easy to justify, live in denial, pretend there's no problem, right? But we can do that and nothing changes in our lives, and we just stay in the same habitual patterns, and we really don't grow and develop. And what I'm gonna to try to do today is push you to understand that if you wanna have a 22 that's different than 21, then you have to do some things that are different, because what I, what I mean is, by with the help of God's grace, that we're gonna to have to hear what God is saying to us, and then we're gonna to have to act on what he's showing us. And if we do that, we can say, yes, life will be different this year. Now, Proverbs 28, 13 says something very fascinating. It says, whoever conceals their sins doesn't prosper. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. R.K. Harrison rightly states, he says, in the empty, which is the Masoretic text. It's just a certain uh, Old Testament text rather than a Septuagint or another text. He indicates that each man of Judah and Jerusalem is challenged to repent. It must be on an individual basis not a corporate one as, as in the religious rituals of the Day of Atonement. So what he is saying is even though they practice faith in community, everybody had to respond individually. Okay, are you following that? Because sometimes we can just say, well, if we did this, I'm going, no, no, if I did this, and you have to say, if I do this, that's what brings about change. The emphasis on personal religious experience is especially important for the theology of the new covenant where repentance for sin and the acceptance of Christ as Savior is strictly individual in nature. So, you know, we're, we're sitting down looking at, at the, the, the problems of a nation and we're condemning them and God goes, you're just wasting your time. You know, anybody can see the problems if, you're, if you have a little bit of 
Bible understanding. You can easily say, well, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's evil. But that's not what's going to bring about change. You know, anybody can come to me and say, Pastor, this is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem. It's another person that comes and says, this is the solution. That's a different person. It takes a little more discernment, a little more wisdom to figure out what, what do we do about this stuff. So what, do you, what this means is that we need to stop looking past ourselves at the sins of the nation as a whole and begin to allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and to address those things in our lives that are not pleasing to him. That's where we're going this morning. See, that's so important we get that. That's where the real revival and transformation begins. And so here in verses 3 and 4, we see that the need is to address the heart condition. And I've already talked about that. We, can, we need to prepare the soils of our heart. You know, I always find it fascinating. When a person comes to church, how do we come? You know, I don't know about you, but I, I spend actually two hours to prepare my heart to even come here and minister. You go, why do you do that? Because I think you have to be prepared. I think you have to prepare. I mean, I, I spend more than that working on the sermon. I'm just talking about preparing my heart on Sunday morning just to be ready. You say, if you come in here and you don't have a prepared heart, and you're just coming along and plumping your butt on the pew, and that's the extent of it, and you know, you're kind of in and out, and you're listening here, and you're falling off there in your mind, you're not engaged, don't expect a lot of change to happen in your life. But if you come and say, Lord, I'm here this morning. I'm here to hear your voice speaking into my innermost being. I believe you have something to say to me today. And when I hear it, I'm going to respond to it. It's going to bring about change in your life. I guarantee you, you won't be the same person. And if you start doing that week by week, you're going to become a totally different person at the end of this year. No problem. It'll happen. You know, Part of the reason is because so often in our lives, we've got so many things going on, they're like weeds, and the moment we drop the seed in, they just get choked out. God's word never gets a chance to really grow and develop in our life. So there's some things we're gonna have to get rid of in our life. We're gonna have to put aside in order to let that seed really develop and grow in our lives. The second analogy he uses is that of circumcision. He says, don't just be circumcised outwardly a fleshly operation that identifies you in the Old Testament as a child of God, a covenant person. He says, no, let your hearts be circumcised. This has got to be an internal work. It's not just an external thing. And even when we do water baptism, which is really what? An outward sign of an inward reality. We have to allow that inward work of the Spirit to bring about the change in our lives. Otherwise, it's just external. I'm just making an outward profession of faith, but there's nothing happening internally in my heart. God wants to change us from the inside out. That's what he's about. So I think we need to be regenerated or made alive by the work of the Spirit so that we have a new heart. Now listen, if, if all of our desires are for the things that are sinful, we probably need to get saved. We probably need to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. See, when God comes into our lives, he changes our hearts. He changes our longings. He changes our desires. Isn't that true? All of a sudden, the things I once loved, I go, I don't want to do that anymore. And the things that I just ignored and had was indifferent to, now I begin to love. I begin to love God's word. I begin to love worship. I begin to love people that I couldn't take for, you know, I didn't want to be around them. I just thought, just don't bother me. Now all of a sudden, I love these people. I care about them. I'm, I'm concerned about other people. See, that's a change of heart. Something has transpired. Now, but how do we, you know, I, I thought about this. How do we really prepare our hearts to receive God's life-giving word that will transform us? Isn't that a good question? How do I do that? 
I mean, you're telling me, prepare my heart, Pastor. How do we go about doing that? I'm going to go to the New Testament. I want to show you this isn't just Jeremiah telling us break up fallow ground, right? The Apostle Paul says it this way in Colossians. He says, put to death. What does that mean? Kill it. Right? Stop it. Bury it. Incinerate it. Get rid of it. Whatever belongs to your, what? Your old sin nature. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Lust. Hey, you know what? Why is it that so many people are struggling with these kinds of problems in their lives? Think about it. We have a responsibility. If we're a child of God, put it to death. How do you do that, pastor? You, 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 instead of feeding your soul that kind of garbage, you move away from it, you turn your back on it, you walk over here and say, I'm going to do something totally different. I'm going to give all of those energies to this over here. We're going to look at what are those things. You know, if we're, we're locked into greed, you know, we're going to be more interested in what I'm getting. It's all about me. All of these things really is focusing on self, which the Bible says is idolatry. We, you know, in North America, we worship self. That's what we're worshiping. You know, it says, because of these, listen, the wrath of God is coming. Oh, wait a minute. That's just an Old Testament concept, the wrath of God. No, 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 no. It's coming. God's going to judge our world, folks. We don't want to hear that message, but it's true. It's happening. It says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. So, you know, we're not here to condemn people because they're living there. We're just saying that's how we used to live too. We're all there. What's happened? God, there's been an operation. God came by his Holy Spirit, changed our hearts. He says, now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Let's look a look at this list. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. You know, a lot of times we're walking around, we get all upset. We're angry, but we're not angry about the right things. We're angry because somebody rained on our parade. We didn't get our way. You know, we're impatient. Come on, let's be honest. That's, that's all junk. That's the stuff you got to put to death. That's where you got to die to yourself. If you want to come alive, this is a paradox. You got to die. How many want to come alive in Christ? Then you got to die to yourself. It's a paradox. Jesus, unless you deny yourself, you can't have what I have. He's telling us to do that here. How can I do that? Because the Holy Spirit's there to help me. He says, don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with this practice, but rather put on the new self. This is how you displace the bad behavior. Here's what you need to be putting on instead. You're going to be renewed in the knowledge of the image of your creator, he says. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, how many here say, that's, you just described me perfectly, Pastor? No hands going up. I didn't notice any hands going up. Anybody there? Anybody say, that's just me. That's just the way I am. I can't help myself. I'm just full of this stuff. <laughs> that's the new nature. Now, how many here you say, that's how I behave when the prime minister says something I don't like. I'm just full of compassion, kindness, <laughs> humility, gentleness, and patience. What am I telling you? I'm telling you we're not really behaving the way God wants us to, and then we don't understand why is it we're having no impact in the culture? Because we're not like Jesus. We're not like William Wilberforce. We have the wrong methodology. We may, we may want to curse the evil and curse the darkness, but we don't understand we're part of the problem. We're stuck over here, but we need to be over here putting on these things in our lives. 
He says, bear with each other, forgive one another. If anyone has a grievance against you, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Wow, is that powerful stuff for what? Anybody say, hey, if I started preparing my heart like this, I'd probably be hearing a lot more from God. Okay, let me move on to number two. Responding properly to warnings. Now, how many know a lot of times we're threatened when somebody says, oh, you got to smarten up there. I'm, I'm all offended now, right? I'm all upset. That's, that's how we behave. You know, we avoid people who might say something that might speak the truth. Now, it would be nice if people spoke the truth in love. That, that's the way we should be talking to people. Some people have no patience, and so they speak with an angry tone or they're upset or whatever. Yeah, but Proverbs 28, 23 says this. Whoever rebukes a person will in the end gain favor rather than one who has a flattering tongue. Now, I'm gonna say this. Regardless of what people say, you know, they might say something in the wrong attitude, but I should be sitting here saying, well, maybe that's true. I should be more humble and say, maybe I can learn from this person. Maybe I need to learn from this criticism. Maybe I need to see, maybe they're seeing something in me I'm not seeing in me, and I need to evaluate that. I don't mean camp on it. I don't mean take it on, especially if they're, you know, saying something that's not true. But sometimes there is truth. We, I, I think we rarely want to hear the truth, especially when it causes us emotional pain. However, it's better to hear the truth and realize that change needs to be made in my life in order for me to grow up and to become a healthy person and to live past that self-deception that so, I so easily embrace, you know? Right? Sure. Jeremiah's sounding the warning. He's like a sentinel on the wall, blowing the horns and telling them destruction's on the way. Look at verse five. Uh, well, let me go back. That was an important little statement. We never become the person God designed us to be by allowing sin to dominate our lives. I mean, well, that's true. All sin can ultimately do is ruin us. So we need to understand that. Sin is not our friend, it's our enemy. That's one of our big enemies. We gotta deal with it. Jeremiah says, announce in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, sound the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, gather together. Let us flee to the fortified cities. They were being attacked. Raise the signal to go to Zion. That's another name for Jerusalem. Flee for safety without delay for I'm bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. Who's doing this? Who's doing it? I'll let you think about it. Verse seven, a lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. He's talking about Babylon. He's left his place to lay waste your land. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitant. So put on sackcloth and lament and wail for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned away from us. Who's doing it? Who's bringing the invaders? God is. Oh, wait a minute, pastor. That's not my theology. God would never do that. Well, keep listening. Robert Davidson said, yeah, this is not merely an enemy invasion. It's an expression of the fierce anger of the Lord. Here Jeremiah is talking about a northern invasion that will be devastating because the people had turned their backs on God. Now there are two conflicting voices in the day of Jeremiah. And I want to just quote Robinson again because he says it so powerfully. He says, surely this is not a God who would allow the land to become a waste, a city's ruined and uninhabited. They were, these were deeply held sincere convictions and those who held them uh, who held them, Jeremiah's words must have seemed the words of a false prophet, a scaremonger, a heretic, a traitor to king and country. Yet Jeremiah believed that such people were wrong and that those who said all will be well were actually deceived. Just as Jesus was sorrowfully to look at Jerusalem and say, 
Would that even today you knew the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. What are we learning? That God will let judgment fall on nations. And he's done it over and over again. And Jesus is weeping. He's God in the flesh, weeping over the city of Jerusalem because they did not know the day of their visitation. They did not embrace that opportunity. They did not repent. And the end was ruin and destruction. We better start listening because there's a lot of people out there will tell you, oh, everything's going to work out okay. I think there's a problem. I think we need to identify the problem and we need to start looking at what is the solution. Well, how do you explain these conflicting views of deeply sincere people all claiming to know God's will? Isn't that a great question? And don't we have that today? I have people saying, man, there's all these different viewpoints and there even preachers are on different sides saying different things, Pastor. Uh, Jeremiah says, then I said, alas, sovereign Lord, how completely you have deceived this people in Jerusalem by saying you will have peace when the sword is at our throats. He's saying they're in denial. Can they not see that you cannot sin against Almighty God and expect there'll be no consequences to sin? Well, keep moving on. At that time, the people in Jerusalem will be told a scorching wind. So now he describes this judgment as a marauding lion and a scorching wind, a south wind. From the barren heights in the desert blows towards my people, but it's not to winnow or to cleanse them. No, it's a wind too strong for that that's coming from me. Now I pronounce my judgments against them. Look, he advances like the clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, we are ruined. Now, I know he's using poetic language, but what is he saying? He's saying God's coming with judgment and we are doomed, okay? Are we hearing this? A voice, uh, sorry, Jerusalem, wash the evil from your hearts and be saved. What is he doing? He's telling them, you guys better change. You better repent. You better acknowledge that what you're doing is wrong. How long will you harbor these wicked thoughts? A voice is announced from Dan, proclaiming disaster from the hills of Ephraim. Now, you need to understand geography there. Dan and Ephraim are up north. Babylon has already come from the north. It's already destroyed. It's coming south. It's heading to Judah, and it's got a full head of steam on it. And you know, they had been saved once from the Assyrians in the southern kingdom. Remember that? So they just thought, no, this will never happen. God will never allow our, our glorious temple to be destroyed. How many know it's been destroyed twice? We put our security in the wrong things, a wrong understanding. He says, tell this to the nations. Proclaim concerning Jerusalem a besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. They surround her like men guarding a field because she's rebelled against me, declares the Lord. God says, why is this happening? Why is God allowing this terrible plight to happen. Couldn't God defeat the Babylonians? Of course he could. But he said, I'm letting it happen because you've been sinning and sinning and sinning. And I've been warning and warning and warning. And you've become hardened and indifferent. You could care less. And I've said it for not only a year or two or 10 or a hundred. I've said it for a couple of hundred years and you've just ignored me. And God says, I'm just giving you up and letting you now experience the nature of the consequence of sin. Wow. Your own conduct and actions have brought this on you. This is your punishment, how bitter it is. 
how it pierces to the heart. God's making an appeal. We know that Judah did not heed Jeremiah's words, words of warning. But what about us? You say, well, how does this relate to me, Pastor? I mean, this is all fascinating. Great history lesson. Well, how does that apply to me? Have we really evaluated our lives? Is Christ sovereign in every aspect of my life? Am I living simply for myself and I got a cloak of Christianity around me? You know, am I serving God on my terms and not on his terms? What is it that God requires of me should be the cry of every heart. God, why did you fashion me? Why am I here on this planet? You created me. What did you have in mind? Why did you put me in the year 2022? How can I honor and glorify your name? How many think these are powerful questions? In other words, you know, can we say like the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? I mean, is, is that why I'm here? It's not about me. Listen, this is a short journey called time. We're passing through this world. And really, we've been designed by God for a purpose. And I need to ask myself the question, am I doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing? These are searching questions. We need to ask these questions and not just go, oh, no big thing. You know, you're a pastor. No wonder you think that way. You know, I stock shelves. I pump gas. I deliver papers, whatever it is. You know what, you can do any of those things for the glory of God. Just make sure that that's what God's asking you to do. Let me move on to the third element. It's the weeping it produces. Now what I mean by that, it's the effect God's words has or should have on my soul. But even beyond that, you know, the one that's communicating it. How should I communicate God's word to others? I mean, when God's word comes to me, am I indifferent? Does it challenge me? Does it rock my world? Do you think when Moses had the burning bush experience, that was a light and trite little thing? How many think that when God showed up, that kind of put Moses back quite a bit? As a matter of fact, God told him, hey, take off your shoes. You're standing in holy ground. I don't think Moses was the same person after that. What do you think? I, you know, when, when Isaiah was in the temple and he had a vision of God high and lifted up, I don't think he was the same person after that. What am I saying to us? When you and I encounter God, it should do something to us. You know, when we come to church, we're just maybe sitting here going, oh, it's great, it's another Sunday. Could you imagine if we had a theophany, which really means that the, we have a revelation and experience the supernatural breaking in right now. Even though God is here, all of a sudden, boom, the burning bush would be, you know, Con, not consuming the front here, but just come alive and we'd all see it. I tell you right now, you'd all be on your faces before Almighty God. And, I, and you'd be going, okay, you got my attention. You know, what does God have to do to get our attention? That's what I'm getting at. You know, pretty powerful stuff. And why I'm saying all of this, because I believe that when we're in the presence of God, it, it does something. There's a brokenness that comes into our lives. There's a humility you know, we're not walking around going, yeah, you should be doing this or you should be doing that. You know, when Isaiah was, when his sin was revealed to him, I don't think he started around people and saying, hey, you got to smarten up. He recognized he was broken. There was a brokenness in him. There was a change in his soul. You see, that's so important that we get this point in our lives because I think one of the great dangers of people who are on God's path is that we can become very self-righteous and haughty. 
It's true. Uh, look what you're doing. How bad is that? As if, you know, we're immune from doing that. Come on, let's face it. We're sinners. Yeah, we've been saved by grace, but we can be guilty of it. Paul warns us. He said, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Why? Watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Do you think you and I are above sin? No way. We could be sliding into that so fast. And you know, we do. We get upset. We say things we shouldn't say. We have the wrong attitude. We have the wrong emotion. We, got, you know, we let our emotions get the best of us. Come on, let's be honest. Isn't that true? Because I did point out to us, we had a chance to raise our hands when I talked about being kind, compassionate, patient, all that. I didn't see any hands go up. So I'm, I'm assuming, like you've joined my club, we're still working on some details in our lives, right? Jeremiah, he's preaching the sermon. Listen, when he says, oh, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart, my heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent for I've heard the sound of the trumpet. I've heard the battle cry. You know, I think there was a deep angst inside of Jeremiah. He was broken. He was weeping. They called him the weeping prophet. This was not easy for him to deliver this message to his nation and say, guys, we're in trouble. We are in hot water. He could see the writing on the wall. He got it right? There are consequences to people who forsake the way of righteousness and embrace wickedness. As a matter of fact, I would argue that every civilization that turns away from doing justice or equity or fairness or doing good in their nations and they turn towards wickedness and immorality, what happens is they crumble and disappear from the map of civilization. Proverbs said, uh, oh, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Well, I'll go back up there. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruin. In an instant, my tents are destroyed, my shelter in a moment. How long must I see the battle standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? My people are fools. They do not know me. They're senseless children. They have no understanding. They're skilled in doing evil, and they do not know how to do good. Who's talking there? God is. So we need to hear from God while well, he's talking. Are we listening? As a matter of fact, Proverbs says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. And you know, we can look at that and say, well, that's a general statement. Yeah, that's true. And we can say that about our nation, but let's just talk about ourselves for a minute, individually. You know what? If I do the right thing, it will exalt my life. If I do the wrong thing, it will destroy me, my life. And it, you know, nations are made up of people. And you have a whole bunch of people doing the right thing, the nation rises. When you have a whole bunch of people doing the wrong thing, a nation slides down and destroys itself. Jeremiah sees that impending tragedy is upon them. He's, he's basically speaking with a broken heart, and I actually think that what he's reflecting is the heart of God. You see, God is a father. How many here are parents? When you see your child making the wrong decision, and you see what's going to happen as a result. You know that they're going to suffer because of that poor decision. Does it not affect you as the parent and your heart is torn within you? Can I tell you, God aches over our planet. He's brokenhearted over the condition. He's not, he's not here to stamp us out. I mean, if God wanted to stamp us out, he could do it in a moment. Let's be realistic, right? Jesus pointed out to these religious people of his day were full of self-righteousness. He said, I didn't come into this world to condemn it. When they brought the woman caught in adultery, she was you know, caught in the very act. Jesus says to her, I don't condemn you. He didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us. 
Isn't that beautiful? And folks, we need to have that spirit and attitude in our heart. We're not here to condemn people. We're here to help people. We're here to do what we can to help them understand the grace and the goodness and the forgiveness and the love of God. Well, the final element is the destructive waste that occurs. When we ignore God's warning, we end up experiencing devastating consequences of sin in our lives. The result is a waste of a person's life energies. How many people have just lived for themselves and you look at the end of the day and when they die, it's a pretty empty life. And then there are other people who just laid down their life, gave their lives away and served other people and they enriched people all around them. Isn't that what God's calling us to? I think it is. You know, here we find a very poetic description of the devastation that sin creates in society and in its environment. Listen to these verses. I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. Oh, by the way, echoing, where did I read that before? Genesis chapter one, verse two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was out without form and empty. It was desolate. It was God who created order out of chaos. Isn't that beautiful? And you read the Genesis account, you get order out of chaos. Now listen to how Jeremiah phrases it. I looked at the earth. And it was formless and emptying at the heavens, and their light was gone. What was the third thing in Genesis 1-3? And I spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light. I looked at the mountains, and they were quaking, and all the hills were swaying. I looked, and there was no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert, and all of its towns lay in ruins before the Lord and his fierce anger. Robert Davidson says, In verses 23 to 26, we find one of the most striking and dramatic prophetic visions in the Old Testament. Four times we listen to the echoing, I looked, and what the prophet saw was the world he knew dissolving into an unordered medieval chaos out of which at the beginning God had created the world. What's going on here? Well, it's real simple. This is what the Lord says. Let me go back here. I don't want to say that yet. What's being described here? It's a reversal of the divine creation. Do you know when we sin, we're undoing all the good. And we're we're moving towards chaos and destruction. Isn't that amazing? That's what sin does in our world. It always does that. It does that in everyone's life. It does that in nation's life. I could just go down and say, this is what happens when we turn our backs on God. And that's what's happening in our country right now. If you haven't figured that out yet, that's exactly what's going on. We've turned our backs on God and we're moving towards chaos. And you know, the problems are getting more and more complicated for people. People are having a harder and harder time solving them because that's what sin does. It breeds complexity. It brings destruction and devastation and ruin and waste. And it's so tragic. And yet in the midst of all of this, there's a note of mercy. Yeah, back to 27. This is what the Lord says, the whole land will be ruined, though I will not destroy it completely. Aren't you glad for God's mercy? God says, no, I'm gonna stop it. I'll I'll, I'll I'll let it go to a point, and then I'm gonna put put the brakes on. God always is there sparing a reminder that God is not done with his people. Here we see this invading army coming to occupy, and devastation is in its wake. Verse 28, therefore the earth will mourn, and the heavens above grow dark, because I've spoken and will not relent. I've decided, and I'm not gonna turn back. At the sound of the horsemen and archers, every town takes, a, takes flight. Some go into the thicket. Some climb up among the rocks. All the towns are deserted. No one lives in them. What's going on here? This invading army is threatening the very life of people, and they're all fleeing for their lives 
and hiding and wherever they can make it. It's every man or woman for themselves. Isn't that sad? Isn't that where we're moving towards? Sure we are. So how does the nation of Judah address this reality? She thinks, oh, I've got to have a strategy. I've got to have a plan. I've got to deal with this problem. And her plan is to placate them. Listen to what it says. What are you doing, you devastated one? Speaking to the nation of Judah. Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why do you highlight your eyes with makeup? You adorn yourself in vain. Your lovers despise you. They want to kill you. What's going on here? He's using this uh, uh, analogy of a woman trying to seduce or, you know, the person that's coming to kill her. And it's not going to work. Isn't that sad? It says, basically what he's saying, you're busy making alliances with all these other nations to protect yourselves from the Babylonians. It's not going to work. Why don't you just trust me? And you know, that's the, that, how does that apply to us today? It's amazing to me how many pe- things people will do to try to solve their own problems rather than trust God. It's real simple. Turn to God. Get on your knees and cry out for mercy and God will come and rescue. Alan, Andrew Dearborn said, it is not, however, the joy of giving birth but the fear of death that is on her lips. She is in collapse before murderers. I cry as a woman in labor, a groan as one of bearing her first child, the cry of daughter Zion, gasping for breath, stretching out her hands and saying, alas, I'm faint. My life is given over to murderers. What's the end of sin? Death. No wonder Paul summarizes, the wages of sin is death. I mean, Jeremiah is far more poetic. Paul's very direct, right? Let me close. Let me move to an earlier time. Prophet Isaiah. People seemed eager to know God. They had fasted, but it was just a ritual. The real issue was their hearts and their behavior. While they were fasting, they were exploiting people, fighting amongst themselves, filled with strife, busy finger-pointing and speaking maliciously. That's 58 of Isaiah. While they were indifferent to the needs of the exploited, the poor, and the oppressed. You know, as we enter into this year, 22, may we evaluate the time we're in, not by looking around at everybody else, not by pointing fingers at all the problems in our world. If there was ever an hour where we need to turn and allow God's spirit and word to work into our lives, this is it. And what I'm challenging us to do today is stop looking to all the problems around us. I'm not asking you to be in denial. I'm saying we're part of that problem is what I'm getting at. And the reason why we're not moving forward, it's real simple, because we don't see ourselves as part of the problem. We think it's a political problem. We think it's a medical problem. We think it's this problem or that problem. Or we think it's a collective problem. And it will never be solved that way. Years ago, an evangelist by the name of Gypsy Smith said, you know what hinders God from really working? What hinders God from really moving in a great revival and a great transformation? He said, I'll show you. And he drew a circle and he stepped inside the circle And he said, this is the problem. And when you and I begin to address what's wrong inside of us, it'll begin to change 
everything around us. It starts with us. You know, I love that prayer of the psalmist. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If we're gonna see real change in 22, if I'm gonna see change, you're gonna see change. We need to draw a circle and step inside that circle and stop looking beyond it at who out there is the problem and look at one person only and say, God, the only person by the help of your grace that can, I can actually work at changing is me. And I need to put away the evil that I'm doing. Well, you say, well, it's not as bad as that stuff over there. It's bad enough. It's keeping us from moving forward. It's keeping us from experiencing what God wants to accomplish. Do we really, can you honestly tell me today, you go, I totally know what God's purpose is for my life. I'm totally doing God's will. I'm totally manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Or you say, no, there's some issues there. I think when I pointed out those five things from Colossians about compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, I didn't see a bunch of people say, yeah, that's me. That typifies my life. That tells me there's work to be done. So why don't we stand this morning and how many are saying to me, you know what? I want a different 22. How many say, I want a different 22? Anybody here want a different 22? I'm gonna invite you to change 22. See, we can all be passive and wait for all the events and circumstances to come our way and hope that we have better circumstances, right? I'm saying, no, no, wrong approach to 22. Draw the circle. Step inside and say, okay, God, there are things inside of me I don't even know are there. And I know right now if you showed up in a theophany in my bedroom tonight and manifested yourself to me in, in your full glory, I would be like Isaiah. I would begin to see myself as, as you see me and then stuff I don't even see. There, there's things inside of me that need to be changed. I can't see it. So I'm gonna pray today. Search me, O oh God and see if there be any offensive way in me. That's a terrifying prayer. Because you know what? God's gonna answer that prayer. He's gonna show you. Okay, you know how you're impatient there, you're angry there, you're upset there. He could just start putting fingers on things. You know how you're this and this and this, and you're blaming that, and you're pointing your finger there, you're gossiping there, you know, you're exploiting that situation, you know. Some of you are stuck in addictions. Let me, let me explain something to you. The more you keep doing the wrong thing, the more that you're getting some sort of a sense of pleasure in your brain. I'm, I'm studying the brain right now. It's actually all addictions are the same. That's why people get caught in addiction. The only way to break free, there's a power, folks, greater than our addiction. It's the power of the living Christ, the power of the Spirit of God. And when you and I say, God, forgive me, empower me, and then you have to put to death whatever that is, and then you have to clothe yourself. It, it, how many say, hey, but that's a little bit of effort, Pastor. I thought it's all of grace. It's, yeah, it's, it's gonna take grace for you to do that. I can guarantee you, you won't do that on your own. It'll take God's enabling grace. But God has to have a cooperative person, and that's what he's lacking sometimes in our lives. We're not cooperating. We're passively sitting there going, okay, God, do it. Zap me. That's how, that's how a lot of Christians are. Just, okay, God, 
I want change, just zap me, you know? God goes, listen, I'm talking to you right now. I'm telling you what you need to do. I'll give you the power to do it. It's with every head bowed right now. How many here say, you know what? I'm drawing a circle right now. I'm drawing a circle right now. I'm climbing into the circle for 22. Come on now. Let's, let's respond to God. If you want to change, and if you want to let circumstances define your life, that's your business. I'm telling you. It's gonna, you're going to have to be more active. And stop looking at everybody around you. Stop complaining. Stop whining. Stop pointing the finger. Stop criticizing. Stop it. Get on your knees and say, okay, God. This year, it's you and me. And I, I would say it, the Spanish guys would be saying, mano to mano, you know, man to man, woman to God. I mean, it's not even man to man. It's you and me are going to stand before Almighty God. We're going to be like Jacob wrestling with God this year. And I guarantee you, when you're done wrestling with God, you're going to be limping. You're going to limp out of that, but you're going to be a different person. You're going to become a person, a prince, a princess. You're going to have authority and power you never had before, but you are going to walk with a limp. You're going to be far more humble, far more loving, far more compassionate. It's true. How many say, you know what, Pastor? It's easy for me to see the problems, but I have to admit, sometimes my approach to the problems are not always the best. I have good intentions, but I end up, you know, fighting fire with fire. I end up, end up sliding into evil to beat evil. You're not going to win. I guarantee you, evil's going to defeat you every time. Jesus did not do it that way. Jesus laid down his life. That's what I'm calling you to do today. Lay down your lives. Give up your rights. Oh, sacred word in Canada. Give up your rights. Lay down your rights. Jesus laid down his rights in order to come and die so others would have life. That's what he's calling us to. Are you willing to embrace that? Hear my Lord. Hear my Lord. I need your help. I, I, I can't just do this in my own strength. I need your help. Lord, I just pray we have heard your voice today. I believe that. And Lord, help us, oh God, not to just walk away from here and just forget what's just been communicated. Lord, make this a living reality within us, not just in this moment, but throughout the year. May you bring back these words, I have to put this to death. I have to lay down my life. I have to give up my rights. Lord, I am living for you, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. I pray that you would just emblazon that into the souls and minds and hearts of each one that's listening to me today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave.